Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for AMDA on the go, Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda, and I thank you again for joining us um, for another one of our great conversations. Very excited today because we're going to be talking about ageism and the culture of aging and the bias of ageism with Drs. Fatima Nakwi and Cynthia Kuttner. Fatima, Cynthia, would you care to introduce yourselves? Yes, hi. Uh, um, I'm, I am Fatima, and I'm well known to post-acute long-term care, a geriatrician, family physician, passionate, uh, working as an assistant professor at uh, George Washington University, uh, love advanced care planning, and um, I'm really into um, kind of um, understanding what ageism is so we can support our older adults down the road. And I'm Cynthia Kuttner. I'm the medical director at the Wilmington, Delaware VA Community Living Center in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, I'm also a geriatrician and certified in hospice and palliative care. And this issue of ageism is uh, near and dear to my heart. Thank you both for being here with us. I, I, I feel like this is one of those things that we are always having to deal with in the geriatric space, at our post-acute long-term care space, whether we're practicing in palliative hospice, it is something that comes up all the time. And we've seen those challenges that arose during the pandemic. Um, we've seen it before the pandemic. It has just been uh, a conversation I feel that we need to continue to have. I'm very curious to know from both of you, what you feel the attitude around aging is um, in our culture today. And I, I'm gonna toss that over to Fatima first, and then Cynthia, please just jump in afterwards. Thank you, Diane. So uh, knowing myself, I've been in the United States for the last almost 21 years, and I grew up um, in Pakistan. Uh, but at this time, I have my family all over the world, including Australia, Canada, uh, US, UK. Um, and I can tell you that uh, all across the globe, um, the concept of aging uh, is changing. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, we were uh, we respected our older uh, adults, our grandparents, and we used to see them as a resource of wisdom, uh, as a resource of respect and a figure and authority that would guide us. Um, and as that was when I was kind of growing up, um, because I grew up along with my grandparents. Um, but as now, when I see my own kids, um, that perspective is kind of globally changing. Um, 
not so much uh, in some areas than the other. But now, um, as you know, as you're driving down the road with your family, if you have a car that's slower, you would say, oh, is that an old person driving or is that a lady driving, which really is a concept of aging uh, or discrimination, as you can say, which is getting more common than I would say it was maybe three or four decades ago. Um, so really um, in our homes, in our settings, uh, in the healthcare field, um, all these concepts are, along with other things, are transitioning a lot, uh, which really I feel, um, sometimes I feel it is complicated right from the beginning, which was, but more so it's more obvious at this point and at this time of our life. Cynthia, over to you. Yes, well, un unfortunately, I have to agree with you. I really just have the U.S. perspective, but um, I think that the media, uh, newspapers, magazines, television, social media, everything is geared to um, how can one avoid aging and how can you um, seem younger, more beautiful, more attractive, um, prevent aging. There's all kinds of books and uh, it's just, just everywhere. Um, so I, I find it very, um, very sad and, um, continue to struggle against it and to try to educate the people that I know and the people that I work with about ageism, but it's ingrained, um, just even in, in children as they're growing up, studies have shown that children as young as four years old have already decided that it's bad to get old. And so it's very hard to uh, to fight against it. Yeah, you know, I, I think you both, unfortunately, like we're all going to agree here because we it is just different. And I, I really, you know, appreciate um, the perspective of, that we once considered those who were older in our um, communities as the wise individuals, um, that they had the wisdom. And now everything is anti-aging. <laughs> you, you turn on the TV or or to your point you made, Cynthia, wherever you're looking at, someone's um, talking down um, the whole process of aging. Here's your, your cream, your makeup, your something to make you appear um, younger. And I think it does um, penetrate into how we provide and think of the older adult and what's happening in their life. Yeah, Diane, and uh, you know, just to piggyback what you were saying, I was actually thinking about and contemplating. And when we look at a two-year-old who uh, or a toddler or an infant who's trying to walk, they get up, they fall, they get up, they fall. And uh, they they are eating, some of it is going in, some of it is, is spitting out, and we call it cute, you know. But let, let alone when the spectrum of this age is kind of uh, in an older adult, uh, we, we see it as an emergency and as an alarm or something that we cannot handle mentally. Um, and that's like a aha moment for me when I feel, I mean, though though this is an extreme of age, but they are both doing the same thing. Earth or a facility of being dependent on others, of getting dementia or not being able to speak for themselves. Um, and they just are are afraid of of 
turning out like that and being childlike as they age. So that's the 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 rock that we're up against. So it's not it's not an unreasonable fear. Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's not an unreasonable fear. I mean, I think about I, I've seen in my own family um what having um, vascular Alzheimer's dementia, having a stroke, what it could mean um, to that person's physical function, to to their uh, their cognitive function, and what happens. Um, I'm just wondering, though, if is it um, our perspective that's changing around that individual, or is it? that we're really taken aback by the conditions that they're they're having. Like, are we um, injecting a lot onto that older person and, and the thought of that older person as being um, disabled or, or incomplete because now they're older? Yeah, and I can take this question. Uh, I feel, um, Diane, um, Actually, your question is very, very valid and very deep. It has a deep answer. So it really needs a lot of dissection into, you know, the intra and the extra um, environmental factors, personal factors. And when you look at it and you see that it's more like and not only just systematic, it's not at the systemic level. It's really the interpersonal structural ageism, which is now more entwined into the structural racism, um, which is getting more complex, uh, creating and exacerbating these disparities. So it is it is not just, you know, just one's own feeling, but there is an element of increased implicit as well as explicit biases, which may, uh, may be unconscious to begin with, but because the healthcare system that we are in, it forces a person to think differently than otherwise how I used to think when I was growing up about the older adults. So, so again, it is uh, there are a lot of things that have involved have been a part of, uh, unfortunately, this conundrum that we are facing uh, when we dealing with ageism. So, can we unpack that for a little um, bit? I, I'm curious when we say that there are the biases that we're dealing with around ageism. How do we? Um, see those biases and the attitudes permeate it to um, not only into the post-acute long-term care setting, but uh, the healthcare setting overall? Well, certainly if people are delirious and come to the hospital, they're often assumed to be demented. And if they have hearing or visual impairment, they're also often assumed to have dementia and not be able to make their own decisions. And that happens everywhere in, in the clinic, in the hospital, in the nursing home. Um, it's really hard to work against that and um, often to piece out what the cognition issues actually are. Um, but I, I was kind of struck about something that, that Fatima said. Um, I think maybe some of the change is related to people living longer and having more interventions and having longer periods of disability than they used to before we had so many medical interventions. And perhaps perhaps the ageism is worse now as a result of that 
because people can go on in a debilitated condition for a very long period of time. That is an interesting point. I think that um, is something that we, you know, we need to really consider. We have done a lot to um, sustain life differently than what was what happened even 50 years ago. Um, so it is interesting to think, are, is this a challenge or is this an issue that we've created because now we're seeing more um, debility in the older population than we did before? Yeah, and I think older people are, are fearful of having strokes and being paralyzed or unable to speak or getting dementia and unable to think clearly. And yet we, we maintain people with dementia and strokes and Parkinson's and other neurologic conditions for years upon years with all kinds of interventions. And, you know, some even end up with feeding tubes and other kinds of, um, of internally attached devices that, that keep them going. And while they can be a blessing, in a way, it can also be a curse. <laughs> I mean, that is true, but uh, as I was reading through, uh, David Bowie said, uh, aging is an extraordinary ordinary process where you become the person you always should have been. And um, as much as what's going around in the world, I always go like to go back in my own thinking box and, and see the world uh, with my eyes of um, equity where I feel everyone, uh, no matter what age or, or skin tone or the country or the location, needs to be treated the same way. And and when I when I start to think like that, I feel sometimes, um, yes, there are factors in the society and now because of the healthcare disparities, um, and because of all those uh, things and COVID pandemic really didn't help us much in that. Um, there are things which have pushed us into this corner of um, ageism. But I do feel the element of our unconscious bias and our inner um, our inner feeling of uh, kind of accepting ageism as a norm um, is becoming more common because probably internally we don't know how we, we would deal with it if we try to oppose it. And I'm just thinking from a layman perspective, like if I get a paycheck, which I have only, I can only feed my kids with, and I am struggling in my personal life also, and I have these older parents who are dependent on me, uh, so I will start to think, okay, what what can I do? Who I need to support one versus the other? So I do feel as much as there are personal factors involved, there is a role of society also which push us, uh, which is pushing us to that direction. But unfortunately, the problem is we know our aging population is going to uh, get more and more uh, down the road 2030. So I really feel it's important we are thinking about it so we can think what next we need to do or how we need to change our thinking direction. So in thinking about how we change our thinking and the direction we're going, yes, we are seeing that um, we we do ex expect to see 
more and more individuals over the age of 65 were already experiencing that. I wonder, though, um, why that attitude still is so prevalent. And there was something, um, I think, Cynthia, you were, you mentioned it, where there's a fear of um, all of the, the things that could come. And as I, I shared, you know, I've seen that. I, I was very fortunate to know five great-grandparents. Um, very fortunate to have seen a nursing facility when I was a, a kid a couple of times. And, you know, we would pick a person up and bring them back to the barbecue that we might be having. So it was a different um, experience because we were always around the great aunts and uncles, great grandparents um, and grandparents and seeing them function at different levels, hearing stories about what they were bringing and who had the, who made the best cake or the best macaroni and cheese. These were just things that you heard on any given um, um, Sunday. So I'm wondering, you know, as we're thinking about how our attitudes have changed. We know that the media, we know that um, things have been very prevalent, but what do we do to counter that as um, clinicians working in a space of, of vulnerability that we do where we're seeing people and going into a, a, a space where they live at, whether it's a nursing home or you're in their home, um, what, what, how do we change the way we're perceiving on those individuals who we call patients and residents. And I'm going to start with Cynthia, um, since I <laughs> mentioned you a couple of times. Uh, well, I think, first of all, um, we need to not just look at them as patients, but we need to look at them as people and the unique, special person that that patient is. And, and honor that. And then I was talking with one of the medical students um, that's rotating with us earlier today about, well, how do we teach the staff, the nurses and the uh, caregivers and the other ancillary staff about ageism and how do we teach them to respect older people more? And that's a really delicate thing because it's easier to um, have feelings ourselves and even to model those feelings than to, uh, to teach other people how to be less ageist or more, um, open to people's uniqueness. So, um, I think it's a work in progress, but I think we have to be very intentional about it. Um, one of the things that I like is to learn personal information about my, my patients and their families and, to get to know their families, and so I see them as a as a whole unit with their family rather than just somebody that's in a room with a room number, and I try to know what's important to them. So bringing up the age-friendly principles and the four M's of what matters most to people, I think, is a step in the right direction, and um it helps to make the person um, stand out and um, be respected and and um, just be thought of in a more personable way. Yes, uh, and um, I agree with what Cynthia is saying, uh, really looking at the person as a person uh, and respecting them where they are in their life 
and also being aware of their vulnerabilities, also being aware of their past contribution to the society. I think when we look at older adults, we feel um, they may not be able to do what they used to do. But I think that's where we need to kind of look within and th- change that um, the glasses with which we look at them is more of a figure of respect and also understanding um, their position of how vulnerable they are because they are the one who are the ones who are losing control over one versus the other. Um, so it's more of a working within the self and around in the environment, as Cynthia and you are saying. So, Cynthia, I want to go back to something you said, Cynthia. Can you talk more about the age-friendly health systems and the four M's for our, for um, all those who are listening? Sure. So, um, so age-friendly is a program, well, it's a concept, but it's also a program through the Hartford Foundation where your organization can be certified as age-friendly at different levels if you meet the criteria. And, and the basic ideas behind the four M's are to look at uh, medications, mobility, mentation, and then my favorite, which is what matters most to the person. And so in our healthcare record, we actually have a template for this, and we make a point to, uh, to ask people about how they feel about their medicines. Do they feel like they're taking too many? Um, are any of them really unpleasant or giving them side effects? Um, how do they feel about their mobility and their ability to get around? Um, what is their cognitive level and how are they coping with that? And then what's most important to them? So it might be that it's most important for them to be able to uh, visit with family, or it might be um, we heard about a a veteran today that loves to uh, bet on the horses, and that's probably most important to him. So everyone's unique, and um, understanding that that special uh, part of that person makes a really big difference. And documenting it in the medical records so that, and teaching the whole staff so that they know about that person um, is very valuable. And I thank you for going into that with in, in more detail. I was actually it was interesting. I was reading um, on the Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, about this, and I know there's been a lot of studies where we looked at the four M's. Um, some even talk about chronic morbidity as that fifth M, but it's really important for us to think about and how we're assessing our. Um, our centers, our facilities in in that concept. So I really thank you for going into that. Um, Fatima, you you had mentioned earlier about the those biases and structural racism and all of those things. And we we've talked on this podcast um, maybe a year ago about some of these issues. Can you go more into? Um, looking at aging as the triggering event and what what does it mean how do we um get over that bias yes sure so um i don't know if i can cover all of it but really uh you have to begin with um more of a starting point would be healthcare disparities when someone is in a, a society or someone is going through 
uh, these healthcare disparities growing up and growing older, people from different cultures in different places um, may or may not have the same opportunity and that in turn affects their children and and their and that society that pool where they are um, and when they are growing older they have a kind of twice as risk they are in twice as risk of feeling the concept of ageism or being discriminated because of their prior experiences so that's number one number two is when someone is growing up with these unconscious biases or with implicit biases, which often I would say we never check on our own uh, thought processes unless we are faced with a challenge or unless we are faced with a situation where we have to start thinking about um, how we are thinking, what we are thinking, we continue in the same process. So that in turn um, reflect on the healthcare system also. Um, so in, in a combination of uh, implicit as well as explicit um, biases, as well as these discriminations, when you combine all of it together, it really complicates the situation of a healthcare system, especially in a post-acute long-term care. I'll give you an example. Like we have people in our facilities from Korea, uh, from China, uh, from different parts of the world, of different skin tone people with different languages. And the caregivers are also from different countries. Um, and when a caregiver is taking care of someone where there is a language barrier um, and there's very little communication, uh, there is going to be some kind of discrepancies and discrimination. Hope not, but the chances are more of these things evolving from there. Um, so again, I feel as a post-acute long-term care providers at a leadership level, we need to make sure we are aware of those things so we can help ourselves and train our staff in that aspect. I think it's interesting because, you know, we're, there's a lot of training that we need to do to, to get over those implicit bias, biases. I'm wondering though, and I know we're, we are going to talk about this more. How do we, when we are thinking about the different care settings, um, how are we um, seeing or how does the the bias of ageism shows show up? I don't know if you guys could talk about it beyond just our, our nursing facilities. Um, what does it look like for those rehabs at LTACs, um, SNFs, the long-term care facilities that we're in, the home health agencies? How are we seeing this? Um, if Fatima, I know you gave an example. I'm just curious to see if someone is listening what other things are we seeing? And I'm I'm just going to leave that question open for anyone to to um, approach. Well, I I would say as far as as outpatient clinic care, um, it definitely comes up when someone comes to clinic with a caregiver, and the medical team talks to the caregiver but doesn't talk to the older person. And I've seen that happen so many times and even um, been in the situation where um, I felt like the caregiver was taking over most of the conversation and I wasn't getting enough information from the older um, patient themselves and had to kind of 
of divide the conversation and say, well, now I really want to hear from from the patient themselves. So, um, so I think it's a very common problem there, and especially again if people have um, speech difficulty with dysarthria or aphasia or hearing loss or vision loss or dementia, um, it just gets that much worse. And so finding ways to overcome those barriers is um, is really important, and we all have to find our own way. But if there's a way to teach um, people that are geriatricians and are uh, family medicine physicians or internists or even subspecialists like surgeons um, or cardiologists out in the community how to interact better with those um, type of um, caregiver patient situations that would be very helpful. And to piggyback, Cynthia, I mean, I was just thinking about um, just assuming that if someone is an older adult, when we are doing our advanced care planning and assuming that they are going to go for do not resuscitate or do not do this or that. I mean, sometimes even provider says, oh, this person is like 92 year old and he still or she still wants to be a full code. Uh, knowing that, of course, they have all the four M's in there. Is, is also another thing. And I was going through uh, the JAGS article, and that's what they talk about, that uh, exposing students to just older adults is probably not enough because the geriatric training that is done to the medical students uh, is so minimal. And again, as you are saying, other expertise um, really don't have much understanding of how to handle older adults um, or what are the issues that they go through or how they need to interact with older adults. Um, so again, uh, that is one of the outpatient in the hospital also when we have older adults assuming that um, they may not need all the treatment and we just talk with the family members as you are saying or even not um, even thinking when they have delirium uh, there may be some other complicated issues and not waiting for delirium to resolve and their cognition to come back. Just day-to-day -day clinical stuff is uh, sometimes I feel we don't even think about it and we ourselves go through this. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with both of you on that. I, I can recall um, back to the delirium point that I think you both raised that uh, and Cynthia, you raised even earlier I remember we were we had to send a person out from a facility and as soon as um, the paramedics arrived, they're like, oh, well, this person has um, new onset dementia. And I was like, no, that is not what they have. They're <laughs> trying to explain to them and the trainee and everyone looking at me like I have three heads. I was so infuriated. I'm like, don't just you're not making a diagnosis of dementia. I'm sending this person out because of this, because they're septic, because we can't start certain treatments at that time. Um, we could, and in that facility, and just the the quickness of labeling them with the condition that they did not have was just it was just so profound to me. I was like, how do how do we get here? Right, and. The uh, that's okay, Cynthia. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to to say that I was thinking that another thing that's changed in our healthcare system. It used to be that your primary physician followed you 
um, from the outpatient setting into the hospital and into the nursing home, and there was continuity of care. But now that people are kind of siloed and we have outpatient doctors and hospitalists and nursing home doctors, often the nursing home doctors and the when people first come and the hospitalists for sure don't really know what people's baseline is and they're much more likely to assume that someone is demented when they present with delirium. So I think it's a it's a huge problem. And then the because delirium can take so long to clear, patients that come to subacute or LTAC or rehab situations may still be delirious. Um, we had a case here uh, where I work where a gentleman came in who was had been in the hospital. He was still very delirious. It took weeks for it to clear, but after he cleared, he was very good and he was able to go home. But even I was unsure for um, several weeks as to um, whether he did have underlying dementia or not, and it it didn't um, really straighten out un- until I was able to see him at his actual baseline. And Cynthia, to add this, um, I would probably uh, switch gear a little bit as you were talking about Diane uh, with healthy aging and older adults. Um, something that we probably need to think more about is the retirement age. Uh, there are a lot of older adults who are healthy and they are doing their third or fourth job and is still working. Even physicians who are older, healthy physicians are still working. And uh, it's unfortunate in healthcare field how young providers look at the older physicians um, with their work. Um, but I, I feel that is something that we need to start thinking within first uh, when we see an older adult who is in a healthy living situation and even after retirement, they continue to work for a few years or as many years as they decide. That's something which was not the case a few decades ago. And they're often the best workers, the most reliable, always come in, they're very intentional or also volunteers you know the people that that aren't working to make money but but are volunteering are often so outstanding and and it's it's wonderful that we have them and that they're still willing to do that work and people should really respect what they're doing and my question cynthia is like uh, we as a society what are we doing to show our belonging towards them or to show our respect and acceptance for them. That's a question I always think about and that keeps me awake at night um, when I think of these uh, older adults um, who are working or who are not working. We show our gratitude for them. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting. And I think, um, you know, I know we've talked about ageism mostly from the perspective of the the person who's aging um but it does bring up a good um point uh in thinking about how many older adults are still in the workforce going back to the workforce um returning and what does retirement even mean <laughs> i don't know anymore what it's going to be for me but um uh, I think it is important for us to just acknowledge that ageism is not just for those who are um, getting older. We do see sometimes, um, a lot of times, unfortunately, ageism um, on the others uh, for the younger population too. And it is a question of how do we bring everybody together? 
again, that sense of belonging um, that you said, Fatima, I think that is really an important question for us to address and to think through. Um, I'm going to say that I truly enjoy this conversation. And if you're listening, do not worry. We're not done. This is only part one. We will um, um, bring both Fatima and Cynthia back to have more discussions around our infrastructure and what is happening as we're, we're seeing uh, those older adults age. So thank you both, Fatima. Thank you, Cynthia. Um, we'll chat with you soon. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.